The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Commanding Heights of MDS Care, Team Strategies for Delivering Modern Personalized Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BXU 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So welcome to uh, this uh, Independent Satellite Symposium, the commanding heights of MDS care. It's actually very nice to be here at Soho and see how uh, this meeting is really uh, growing. It's actually my pleasure, honor actually, to be co-hosting you with uh, Dr. Amy Discern, who is a professor at uh, John Hopkins and the lead of the MDS and bone marrow failure uh, program there. Has been a great colleague for many, many years now. Okay. Now, um, obviously, it's not that we're doing ultra-tremendous uh, progress every few months in this disease. Indeed, actually, uh, we've been working for now almost two decades with, you could argue, a relatively slow progress. But I think over the last couple of years, actually, we've seen an increase in the pace of innovation and, and actually the approval of new uh, compounds for, for our disease. And on top of that, we've seen quite a bit of progress also in the understanding of this disease. This has translated into new classifications and prognostic tools. So on your right, you will see some of the drugs that were approved for myelodysplastic syndrome the last couple of years. So they include uh, uh, Luzpatercept that now has two uh, indications. We also saw the approval of uh, the cytabine cetazuridine. This is a true uh, oral uh, hypomethylating agent also a couple of years ago. And then of course, as we discuss in the next couple of minutes, new prognostic classifications incorporating molecular data, such as the IPSSM, that I think is a major uh, improvement in an hour to uh, evaluate our patients. And then uh, this uh, last column with all these question marks, uh, unfortunately, may be dropping a little bit in terms of what we would like to see in terms of approvals and doublets and potentially triplets, but still with uh, uh, quite a bit of interesting uh, uh, compounds, particularly, for instance, BCL2 inhibitors, TIM3 inhibitors, IDH inhibitors that are already approved in AML, but we believe have an important role in myelodysplastic syndrome. Uh, we would like to see some form of immune therapy approved in this disease, so CD47. And of course, we have a major problem that is that of TP53 mutated disease that really affects a significant fraction of our patients. And we also heard some positive data uh, that is quite uh, relevant with uh, telomerase inhibitors also in patients with lower risk myelodysplastic syndrome. So we will hope actually that 2024 could be also a very successful year in terms of new drugs for our uh, patients. Now, despite all this, it is obvious that we are not curing a significant fraction of our patients and that we need to do uh, much uh, uh, better. Actually, there's data from different sources, for instance, from this Connect Myeloid Disease Registry that is a very important tool where we see that basically a majority of our patients with MDS actually only receive supportive care. That is actually quite uh, uh, unusual. And that uh, there is actually a large cohort of uh, MDS patients, and this is uh, seared uh, uh, data, that uh, when you look at their outcomes with uh, conventional therapies, actually is quite poor with survivals that actually less than, than, than one year. Um, we also are facing this problem of what is the real need for patients with low-risk disease, for instance, that is that of transmission dependency. And you see here that we're still lagging in terms of uh, helping our patients improve in terms of this uh, uh, particular uh, issue that our uh, patients. So what are the goals for, for the session uh, today? So I hope that at the end, 
we will have enhanced your understanding of factors that can inform diagnosis and prognosis in MDS. Hopefully, we will increase your knowledge in terms of uh, evidence-supporting innovative therapy for patients with lower and higher-risk malodysplastic syndrome, give you some skills that uh, you may need to develop a personalized MDS uh, therapeutic uh, plan, and then maybe provide you also with guidance in terms of uh, practical aspects, in terms of modern uh, therapeutic approaches for our patients, including dosing and uh, safety uh, uh, management. So let's start with uh, some of the new developments in terms of baseline assessments and prognostications in, in this disease. So there are some diagnostic criteria and differential diagnosis. Actually, this is kind of weird what I'm going to say, so maybe I should not say that. But this is one of the interesting aspects when you see a new patient in the clinic that is actually, does this patient really have malodysplastic syndrome? Do you exclude some other uh, condition that may be what really is happening to the patient or maybe contributing to uh, uh, the disease itself? So you basically see in this slide the diagnostic criteria and the differential diagnosis. So you need some level of uh, cytopenia. Of course, that's not definitive at all. There is some uh, what they call decisive uh, criteria in terms of dysplastic uh, features, maybe the percentage of blast, some karyotypic or uh, evidence of clonality that basically means some type of uh, mutational event that is very common in patients with malodysplastic syndrome. Below, you see basically things that are quite uh, standard in terms of uh, exclusion criteria, but the reality is that sometimes these things can actually coexist with uh, uh, a proper diagnosis of malodysplastic syndrome. And then at the end, uh, you see things like congenital syndromes. Indeed, Dr. Discern is an expert on this kind of hereditary uh, uh, conditions that may be in the context of bone marrow failure or may not really be in that particular context that we see as we are deploying more of these molecular tools more frequently in, in, in our uh, clinics. Now, as you know, there's been quite a bit of um, um, controversy, perhaps, in terms of new uh, classifications for, for this disease. I'm going to be upfront. I'm a WHO uh, person. I don't really agree with a lot of the criteria from the ICC, but maybe I'm wrong, and maybe you don't care about that, but I'll come out uh, uh, about this. But I think, actually, both classifications have uh, uh, merit. I think it's really important, actually, to really start implementing some of the molecular knowledge in terms of understanding what is the natural history of uh, this uh, disorder. So this is a summary of the fifth edition of the WHO MDS classification. Indeed, today, actually, at the in the meeting itself that uh, Dr. Discern and myself will be sharing in a couple of hours, Dr. Curry is going to be giving us uh, a presentation uh, in terms of this topic, so I'll, I'll skip over here. If I want to make a point in terms of WHO, I don't like the name. I don't like that we call these myelodysplastic uh, neoplasms. Why? Because I think these are syndromes. Yeah, these are leukemias and cancers of the bone marrow, but we know that they affect systemically many other tissues like the heart or the lungs, or, and therefore I think these are actually syndromes, and I will hope that in the future whoever makes these decisions thinks about changing the name back to a more uh, broad term, but again, it doesn't really matter what, what, I, what I think. For many years, we wanted to have a more robust prognostic tool, and actually this is very interesting because in the future, I don't know if we're going to live in two worlds or, or not, you'll understand what I'm going to say in one second. So we knew for like 10, 15 years the importance of molecular data, how frequent molecular alterations are in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. We use this already actually somehow to decide therapy, but we wanted to have a comprehensive prognostic classification that could incorporate this molecular data. 
So this is actually now uh, happening thanks to this IPSSM uh, classification. I'm pretty sure that if you're here, everybody has used it or play with it or maybe heard about it. But this is really important uh, tool. It's kind of very easy, democratic to use. It's free in the internet. And it's actually very uh, powerful uh, 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 tool that I use actually in my clinic together with IPSSR classification that this tool will give you automatically to basically have an idea before therapy in terms of what is the expectation for my patient with either low risk disease or high risk disease. So you can go to, to the link there. This is actually straightforward. Of course, you need to have kind of the IPSSR data. So you need to have cytogenetic, you need to have a genomic panel, and then it's very straightforward to actually input this. And this will give you this kind of what I call symmetric classification as opposed to the IPSSR, because now we have like six subgroups that go from the very low to the very high risk, and it gives you a validated uh, idea of what the survival of your patient is gonna be without therapy. That is actually something that I think we need to ask when we approach uh, our patients. So I think this is a major progress, but the reality is that it may be restricted to centers or countries where we have this kind of molecular data that may not be all over the world for sure. So the question is, moving forward, how are we gonna do this? We have a molecular classification for some type of people and a non-molecular one for some others. I don't know how we're gonna be really implementing this. But this is very quick introduction in terms of what's happening with classifications, WHO, ICC, IPSSM. Let's start with the uh, low-risk uh, uh, malodysplastic uh, portion of, of, of this seminar. And we'd like to have some clinical uh, vignette to maybe uh, help us. And I don't remember if I read this and I ask you. Okay, thank you. So Ellen, <laughs> okay. Uh, is a 75-year-old uh, woman that is referred to uh, a clinic for primary uh, care. And in that um, evaluation, the patient has anemia, as you see there, with a hemoglobin of 7.5. Platelets are okay, 200. An ANC that is also good. No nutritional deficiencies, no bleeding. And uh, there is evidence of ring syndroblast, in this case around 20%, with uh, erythroid uh, dysplasia. Of course, you perform this uh, BOMAR exam where you visualize this and you see 2% blast. And because uh, you're here in uh, Houston or in Baltimore, uh, you have access to a powerful NGS uh, assay, and you find that this patient has a mutation on this gene called SF3V1, on this particular codon, at a BAF of around 28% on this NGS panel. And then on your uh, right, you see the morphological characteristics of this uh, uh, film and the evidence of uh, ring syndrome. So, Amy, do you want to walk us through, through this? So one thing that I think is interesting about this patient is by the time she got to be 75, I have to assume that she had been anemic long before she presented with a hemoglobin of 7.5. And we were speaking in a session earlier this morning about how in the United States, sometimes patients are coming to presentation a bit later by the time they're already transfusion dependent or closer to transfusion dependence. And I think this is an example of this. The other thing that clinically I would find useful to know here is perhaps her MCV, just as we think through this. But it really is appropriate in a male or a female in this age range who is truly cytopenic, and yes, the platelets are normal, and yes, the absolute neutrophil count is normal, but this is real anemia to do a marrow assessment. And I think the earlier that diagnostic procedure can be performed is really the question that the first thing alludes to is, 
that's how you get your bone marrow biopsy if you get referred to a hematologist oncologist. And certainly the wait times are long and these are challenges in our current healthcare arena, but I think it's really important. And I do enjoy it biologically when the morphology mirrors, so the phenotype and the genotype, and this patient really does fit. She has ring center blast, she has erythroid dysplasia, and this is actually not the most common SF3B1 mutation. K700E is more common, but all of these mutations we believe yield a better prognosis for these patients. We'll talk about how um, it may help us guide some therapeutic decisions, but this all fits for the patient and she meets those minimal diagnostic criteria that Dr. Garcia Manera alluded to that make her MDS diagnosis. And I would calculate an IPSSM because I'm in an academic center for this patient, but I think we can mostly tell by looking that she probably has a lower risk phenotype with one cell line down and no other co-mutations with her splicing mutation, which is important to think about for her. And I would calculate the IPSSR and the IPSSM for her. And maybe some of you have these sophisticated patients that come in carrying the report that already has the information on it. And we would talk about how sometimes these, the addition of the molecular information can upstage you. But in this case, I think she would be low risk in both. So what we see is that the uh, uh, confirmation of the diagnosis by IPSSM, and then in addition now you see that uh, this patient has a transfusion burden of three units over a two-month uh, period. Does this change your perspective in terms of patient? To me, that's true transfusion dependence. I think we all are aware of the low transfusion burden and the high transfusion burden, two units, four units, how we characterize it but it is not normal in eight weeks to get three units of somebody else's blood. So yes, I believe she is transfusion dependent. And then the, the next question, now that this disease is just changed in a way by the fact that uh, it's needing this transfusion, does the new data from the commands uh, trial with Luz Patterson change your practical approach to this patient, as opposed to maybe, let's say, six months ago? So we have had some exciting times in the lower risk MDS space, and now we have an approval that this patient would truly fit the label for. And I think that's important in guiding our thoughts, and you'll share with us some of the data. I think the discussion I would have is she still has probably three therapeutic options. One is ongoing transfusion use, which is not what any of us yield for because blood is a limited resource. I think an ESA remains a discussion point, but if we follow the command's data, loose patercept is a very reasonable option to raise her hemoglobin here. And I do tend to follow the label in terms of practical dosing recommendations. We don't yet know that she needs a higher dose, so we should start at one milligram per kilogram. And in a, I'm a practical person, and some of my patients are very cost conscious, and they often ask me cost questions about, what's their copay going to be and things like that. And I think we would explore that all in the context of taking global good care of them. Okay, so the take-home messages right now from this first uh, presentation are, are, are shown here. That is, as Dr. Dissenser, that historically these patients with anemia have been treated with supportive care and an ESA. And we're going to be reviewing in a second and then later on in the afternoon evidence coming from this randomized study called the COMMANDS trial, where upfront we compared loose pattern set versus an ESA in uh, this group of patients, and perhaps the consideration that now we should uh, consider this agent as the standard of care for uh, this group of, of patients.
Now, uh, if we go into how we uh, assess uh, patients with MDS, this is kind of an algorithm that is a simplified kind of NCCN guideline. What we do is we divide patients by this uh, consideration of lower versus higher risk disease. You can use IPSSR, more or less than 3.5 points. You can use IPSSM, that's a little bit uh, easier. I guess you can still use the old IPSS. You see uh, the different subsets there. And then I think when we look at the lower risk uh, uh, disease, you see some of the approaches that we have had for many years. They go from iron chelation, growth factors, loose patterns that was already approved as second line for ESA failure in the context of ring cytoblastic anemia. Something that is very North American, that is the use of hypomethylating agents, particularly lower doses of uh, the cytabine, cytabine, maybe now the oral hypomethylating agents. And for sure, the most effective therapy in the current in the correct context, that is lenalidomide for those patients with Del5Q minus uh, disease. There are some patients with what we call hypoplastic malodysplastic syndrome. Indeed, again, Dr. Discern is an expert on this particular condition that we tend to treat like a plastic anemia, or at least I do, and okay, of clinical trials. And then we'll be discussing in the second part of this uh, symposium high-risk uh, disease, where I think age of the patient, whether the patient could be a candidate for induction therapy or hypomethylating agent or a transplant is something that is very important and we'll have time to go through, 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 through that later. So for, I guess, 20, 30 years, actually, I have no idea. For as long as I've been uh, practicing as a hematologist, as a, actually intern, uh, ESAs were the center of our uh, therapeutic approach for uh, this group of patients. So this is part of our kind of everyday uh, uh, practice. Uh, it's interesting though, that they were not really, at least in the United States, formally approved in the context of true modern randomized studies, like what we have to do right now for, uh, uh, for instance, Luspatercept or uh, Imetelstat that we'll also be discussing uh, later. And there are issues with these uh, uh, transfusions, right? Of course, for the patient, I don't overload. Uh, maybe risk of uh, uh, infections. But the reality is that we learn a lot through the COVID times, and still we are going through that in terms of the impact of these transfusions, the ability of uh, getting these donors, transfusion our patients uh, uh, effectively, and actually the significant cost to institutions like MD Anderson that they had to build quite a bit of an infrastructure actually to support uh, uh, their blood banks that may be perhaps unique to, to, to my institution. So there was a major need for a second line or a new agent to improve uh, erythropoiesis in patients with malodysplastic syndrome, potentially other uh, conditions. An example of this is uh, uh, Luspatercept. So the question is, what is this agent? Actually, it's quite interesting because what this drug does is basically it's a fusion protein, so an antibody, that basically will bind to ligands to activate a pathway that we would like to shut down in patients with malodysplastic syndrome. Basically, by inhibiting the inhibitor, we promote erythropoiesis. And it does it in a different way than an ESA that works maybe more at the earliest stem cell level. This actually works more as a maturation type of agent, modulating this TGF-beta pathway in patients with malodysplastic syndrome. Now, to be clear, this is not just super specific for MDS. The good news is that this has other potential roles in other diseases, like in thalassemia, where there's also an indication. And I see, actually, that there may be other conditions where this kind of agents modulating this pathway could have an important role, resulting in improvement in erythropoiesis in our patients. So we had performed a prior study known as the MEDALIS trial. This led to the approval of this drug in second-line rinsteroblastic anemia patients. And one take-home message from that study is that this drug is actually quite safe. 
as you will expect from a drug with these characteristics. And we also saw a phenomenon by which patients with what we term a lower transfusion burden actually had potentially a higher rate of response. So our view was that it made sense actually to position a compound like this in the front line, right? So if it's working in second line, you have an acceptable toxicity profile. Why not testing it in the first frontline uh, uh, context? And that's what we did. Now here, we felt we were part of uh, the steering committee of this trial that would be, of course, unethical to compare it with placebo or without intervention. So we did the logical thing that was to uh, compare, compare it or uh, randomize it against an ESA. And that actually is the genesis of this uh, command trial. It was published in The Lancet uh, with uh, Dr. Platzbecker uh, a few months ago. It was presented at ASCO and, and, and IHA, and, you know, led a couple, I think, last week, right, uh, to the approval of Luz said for patients with anemia with low-risk malodysplastic syndrome. So here you see kind of the schema of this uh, study. So patients with this disease tend to be uh, uh, older than 18. We use IPSSR as the kind of classification because that's what we had basically when we designed this trial. We had very strict definition in terms of transfusion dependency that you see there. And this question comes all the time. Why did you restrict the EPO level on the study to uh, 500? That's actually very important because we were comparing with an ESA, right? So it will be not fair to use this in patients that have very high EPO levels where it will be very unlikely that an ESA will work. So that question comes, and I think is important to really address it. And of course, this is a frontline study, so this is for ESA-naive uh, uh, patients. This was a one-to-one -one randomization between Luzpatercept and Epoetin-alpha, a commonly used ESA. And I think what is uh, uh, really important is what, what the uh, endpoint of, 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 of the study that I think maybe was on, on the prior slide, but basically wanted to have two uh, things. One was the rate of transfusion dependency for 12 weeks, but also a concomitant increase in hemoglobin of at least 1.5 grams. So this is very important because you're looking at a threshold of hemoglobin plus uh, duration of transfusion dependency. And the data from this intent to treat uh, uh, analysis that you see here, and this is the primary endpoint of, of, of the study, is very clear. So those patients treated with loose patterns, regardless of the type of MDS that they had, but our response rate was close to 60% versus 30% for those on the ESA. So basically doubling this response rate of duration of transfusion dependency plus increments in uh, uh, hemoglobin levels. So on this slide that I think is very important, on the left, you see the intent to treat basically all the patients. This is the way the study was designed. Now on, on the right, I, I hope left and right is good here because that's what I see here. So I hope it translates into what you guys are watching. But bottom line, what you see here is the rate of response for a specific subset of patients. So those that have a higher or lower EPO level, those that had more or less transfusion needs, or what we call transfusion burden, let's say four. I think the question that comes now that is very important is that of the phenotype of the disease. What you see in the slide is those patients that are positive for rinseroblast, so rinseroblastic anemia, they have a very clear major difference in terms of response compared to those that did not uh, have that phenotype, whereas that actually is not that clear in those patients that are RS negative. Indeed, actually, the RS uh, 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 response was a little bit lower for those patients uh, uh, treated with loose patercept in the context of RS-negative disease. Now, when we look at mutated disease, meaning SF3B1 is in the direction of 
what we see in ringsteroblastic anemia. And actually, in those patients that are wild type, meaning they did not have the C3B1 mutation, the response also was in favor of the Luspatercept. I personally take this trial as an intent to treat study because it was actually not really stratified or controlled for whether the patient will have ringsteroblastic anemia or not, but someone may not agree with me and there could be a, a, a discussion about this. The reality, what I think is very important from the trial is actually not the response rate that is nice. What I think is important actually is the duration of that response. And actually, if you look at this data, what you see here is that the duration of response was 122 weeks in this analysis versus 77 weeks for those patients on the ESA control. If you think about this, this is one year of transition-free. So if you think about this, you understand the magnitude of this uh, type of strategy for this group of patients with lower-risk malodysplastic syndrome. So indeed, to me, actually, that is more important, although it may not be the primary endpoint of, of the study per se, but when I look at the quality of this data, I think that actually very positive. Now, going back to this topic of RS positive versus RS negative, so what you see on the left is the duration of responses with loose patterns versus ESA in the RS positive uh, context, that's very uh, clear, so 120 weeks versus 47 weeks. Probably it's better to talk about hazard ratio, so it's around 0.6, so it's a 40% uh, uh, improvement. But what about the RS negative, where you know the responses seem to be uh, equivalent? What you see there is that the median uh, duration of response had not been achieved for those patients treated with loose patterns versus uh, 95 weeks in uh, those patients treated with uh, epoetin alpha in favor of the loose patterset, although the number of patients with RS-negative disease was actually uh, significantly smaller on this trial for reasons that are not clear to us on, on this command trial. In terms of safety, the safety profile of both compounds was quite uh, uh, similar. And I think basically this data, in my opinion, uh, establishes this compound as a very effective frontline agent for patients with anemia and low-risk MDS. But there are some nuisance, right, that uh, Dr. Desen was asking or kind of describing uh, at the beginning of this conversation in terms of the cost of this drug, what will be the role in patients with RS-negative disease, et cetera. I think that we're going to be learning as we get more and more experience uh, with this compound. But I think this is the first prospective randomized study in this particular context with hazard ratios that are very clearly in favor of the loose pattern set in this intent to treat uh, uh, analysis. And now uh, I'm very happy to give the podium to uh, Dr. Discern. Thank you, Amy. Let me get this so it doesn't bother you. All good. Okay. So we'll go back to Ellen, who's our same patient that we started with. And remember, we diagnosed her with lower risk MDS, and she had her anemia. And her first line therapy did include an ESA and red cell transfusion. She probably got treated before August 28th. So. That's probably what happened. But after about 15 months of therapy, her transfusion requirement increased to three units a month, and she had a very elevated serum EPO level. So, Dr. Garcia Manera, do you consider this an ESA failure? It doesn't really matter whether I think it's failure or not. <laughs> this is actually what the patient is going to ask you in the clinic, right? This is really bothersome to an individual, having to go to clinic, getting this transfusion. So this patient obviously is a... Uh, uh, not responding anymore to the ESA, probably is having problems with the transfusions, et cetera. So you need to look for a second alternative. And um, you know, the question is, what are the signs of this ESA failure? Actually, this is very easy to measure, right? Like the amount of units that you are providing to, to that patient in a particular uh, chronological uh, time. 
And the question is, what are the options that uh, we have for our patients uh, uh, right now? And I think you're going to be discussing this in the next uh, few minutes. And I think, you know, just to highlight something Guillermo said is often failure is as much defined by the patient as it is for us. And our ability to tell them that they have therapeutic options is really important. And towards that line, we're going to talk about one thing in particular, and that's a metal stack. So before we go into the granular data, would you say that the iMERGE study suggests that a metal stack can be used as a second line option? Yes, I think that the data that has been uh, uh, presented both at ASCO and IHA indicate in randomized study you're going to be discussing now that this drug is active in this group of patients, absolutely. Right, and I think there's, again, the discussion of options includes clinical trials, which is the data we'll discuss here from the eMERGE study on a metal stat. You've heard a few other options that we've, in the question prompts, lenalidomide, ongoing transfusion support. Um, in his flow chart, Dr. Garcia Manera mentioned that even hypomethylating agents may be a point of discussion, but let's really talk about some newer drugs that we can think about in terms of new mechanisms of action and how much we need this for our ESA refractory patients. And really, I always describe it to the patient as the goal is to eliminate transfusion burden because that diminishes their healthcare quality of life. And also blood is not an unlimited resource and comes with transfusional iron overload, among other things. We've talked about how the metalist trial, which was approved in 2000, brought loose powder sub to its initial approval in 2020 for somebody who has ring sitter blasts and was an ESA failure, lenalidomide, and then we're going to talk about the newest option that may be on the table in the relative near term of a metal stat. And I mentioned that lower dose HMAs are also an option. It is sometimes academically of interest to characterize how we define a patient who is truly erythropoiesis stimulating agent resistant or refractory. I'll be frank, the patients don't get muddled down in primary versus secondary refractoriness or resistance. And frankly, they just don't care. They want to get less red cells. And sometimes I fall into that hole myself a little bit. But primary resistance is actually not uncommon. And then relapse is particularly common because as we know, MDS, especially low risk disease, is a chronic non-curable disease with all the therapies we're talking about today. And so ultimately over time, patients are not going to maintain their initial response. One clinical pearl that I'm sure you all know is we do need to make sure as we're stimulating the patient's erythropoiesis that we're keeping them iron replete. But in the absence of supplementing them with iron, the median duration of response is usually 18 to 24 months. And I think that certainly bears out in our clinics day in and day out. Some of these scoring systems are from publications from the Nordic group a number of years ago. And it can be useful when we're thinking forward with our patients to balance how likely we think they are to respond, Baseline EPO level is very important. How transfusion they are, the transfusion dependent they are when we meet them is useful. But really, up until August 28th, we try these and we use them as long as we're working and we have to think about second line therapies. When the metalist trial brought loose powder sub to its initial approval, it was very much a needed drug and the first approval in our MDS space in a long time. But what publications have come since, this most recent one from the group in blood just last year, showed that longer-term evidence confirms that there continues to be that substantial reduction in transfusion burden with ongoing loose powder sub dosing. And I do think for managing expectations for perhaps older patients who are going to have this disease for many years, this type of data is really useful 
to know that they can be on it for a long time and continue to maintain that transfusion decrease and hopefully independence for as long as possible. And I'll just mention one last thing about, we're not showing here swimmer's plots, but one unit transfusion that may be a blip in somebody's course of ongoing loose powder subdosing at every three weeks is something that we should be mindful of and make note of, but perhaps they had a little bit of a GI ooze or something like that. We do wanna make sure that given we have a paucity of drugs in our field, we're using the ones that we do have as long as possible. So let's talk about a metal stat. A metal stat is a drug that you've heard of. I think the trial has a pretty cool name, the iMERGE trial. And the early data showed that it selectively targets malignant cells through a mechanism with telomerase and induces apoptosis. It's really a different mechanism than we've used in MDS, and that in and of itself is enticing as we look for new agents for our patients. And it has very potent activity, particularly in our anemia predominant MDS patients with ring sideroblasts. So after some very compelling phase 1, 2B data, the eMERGE phase 3 trial came with a very similar approach. It's randomized at IV dosing to placebo. So this is truly a registration trial trial that's double-blinded and randomized. Because it was developed a few years ago, it actually uses the IPSS, not the R and not the IPSSM that we spoke about this morning, but it's still applicable. And so the patients to be eligible needed to be relapsed or refractory, and we've talked a little bit about what that means, or have a baseline erythropoietin level that was elevated, so really someone not eligible to receive an erythropoiesis-stimulating agent. And they also had to be pretty transfusion-dependent with four units or greater in an eight-week period over the 16 weeks prior to study enrollment. So this was pretty rigorous criteria, but I think we all know these patients are out there when their anemia from their bone marrow failure with their MDS is getting worse. And these patients could not have 5Q and they could not have previous treatment with lenalidomide or hypomethylating agents. And as I mentioned, it is a randomized study. What they were really trying to understand is eight-week transfusion independence of red cells. And what they've shown both at ASCO most recently and in some other smaller abstracts is there's a higher rate of longer-term duration of transfusion independence when you get a metal stat compared to someone who's only receiving a placebo. This is meaningful difference in these bar graphs. As you can see, the p-values there. It was a two-to-one randomization, and when the patients received the metal stat, they were able to maintain eight-week transfusion independence, which is the first thing that you're seeing here, and then also 16-week transfusion independence and also 24-week independence, and even some at one year. Obviously, there's a little bit of a degradation, but the fact that there's still that percentage of patients at one year maintaining transfusion independence really suggests to me quite an active drug in the space. And remember, this is less time in the clinic, not sitting in a chair, receiving one unit of red cells over two hours every week. This is really clinically meaningful for patients. And when somebody responded with that transfusion independence, that continues, as you can see here, in a longitudinal fashion with a little different display of the data than we just showed. The duration of that response you can see for the eight-week responders 
was quite different between the metal-stat active patients compared to the placebo. And when we see separation of curves like this, we really know that the drug, we hope, is changing the natural history of the disease, but certainly changing the life of the patient, which is invaluable for MDS. We're always worried in a chronic condition, predominantly of older patients, what the side effects are. Because yes, it's nice to be transfusion independent, but not if you can't get out of bed. But really, these adverse events were mostly hematologic. They were consistent with what we've seen with other interventions. In grade three, four, thrombocytopenia and neutropenia, so this is a myelosuppressive drug, were the most frequently reported, but there were no fatal hematologic adverse events, and the non-hematologic adverse events were quite low. A lot of dose modifications were necessary, and I think we're all learning in heme malignancies across the board how important it is to titrate these drugs to what is going on for our patients. Um, and we're also mindful, particularly of liver toxicity in these possibly iron-overloaded patients who may be getting other hepatotoxic agents. But overall, I think given the potential for transfusion independence, this toxicity profile may be manageable for our patients. So I think what you heard is that now in low-risk MDS, we have two new therapeutic, uh, hopefully very soon, two new therapeutic possibilities. And now we're going to move into uh, lower risk. This to me is very ironic because, you know, I thought we were not going to make any progress in low-risk disease, and now, you know, here we are making quite a bit of progress. And if we had time, we could go through a list of agents that are being studied in low-risk disease that I think are going to be also very important, which is kind of paradoxically. So let's see where uh, we stand now with high-risk uh, disease. So we have this patient, uh, Alex, 70-year-old man with confirmed malodysplastic syndrome, it's anemia, has some symptoms, bone marrow shows 9% blast, this patient has a TP53 mutation with a complex karyotype. It's getting uh, weaker. Uh, you are not clear in terms of uh, uh, donor search. And uh, if you remember from the IPSSM, we didn't really discuss this, but if you have used the IPSSM, you will see that there will be a clear question there at the very beginning, that is, does your patient have a P53 mutation? Is this mono versus biallelic? Here they call it a, a multi-hit. So you will see what the important prognostic uh, uh, value of uh, those mutations are in uh, uh, this patient. So this is actually a common patient that we see at MD Anderson, probably the same at Johns Hopkins, and remains a major problem for uh, uh, our patients. So the questions, and I'm going to ask them to uh, Dr. Discern, and are actually quite difficult. So the first one is, is this 70-year-old man with P53 mutated high-risk disease a candidate for transplant or not, number one? I think that should be perhaps kind of your short-term goal. The second is, is this patient a candidate for induction chemotherapy versus a hypomethylating agent? And uh, is there a clinical trial that could help your patient? So Amy, how do you see this? So these certainly are loaded questions, and I will make a disclosure that I am a card-carrying transplanter. However, what guides my decisions in that potential path to cure for patients, and I always say it like that in clinic, is quality and quantity of life. Some people will say you should never transplant TP53 disease, and I do not agree with that statement. However, in this particular setting, he is 70, so we have to assume in the United States his life expectancy, if he did not have this, is another decade, give or take. But he has very poor risk features, and 
two TP53 mutations, so multi-hit with a complex karyotype, is usually not a patient that the immunologic effects of transplant can cure. And so that is less on the table. It's whether or not we can extend life with quality. And so I think that moves us to the second bullet point about how we choose to maintain control over the disease as a in contrast to pursuit of transplant. And I really spend a lot of time managing that expectation for patients. I'm also not sure that patients like this benefit from high dose chemotherapy, but I think there certainly is a role for clinical trials and HMA therapy to quiet the disease down and go for some extension of life. I agree with, with, with you, Amy. So I think right now uh, there are actually uh, very few good options for such a patient. I see some of the people that work with me in the clinic, they, I go like a step-by-step -step type of situation. I don't know that I will make a categorical decision today whether this patient is a candidate or not. You like to see, does the patient respond to therapy? What is the depth of this response? What type of donor, et cetera? And then at some point, you probably are in a better position to make that kind of important decision more than on the very first uh, day. Although for some of these patients, this is actually quite uh, obvious. I think still the hypomethylating agents as single agents actually remain the standard of care for our patients. I don't think that I will be treating a patient with these characteristics with induction therapy. And the question is, will there be some form of immune therapeutics, let's say a TIM3 inhibitor, uh, perhaps potentially effective uh, uh, in, 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 in this context? But we went through this at the beginning. Here the question is, is this a younger patient? For me, pediatrics is like 60s, so that's good or is this an older patient? Now, this is very important. Uh, this morning I got a question about 43-year-old man with MDS, similar characteristics. I'm not sure that I will apply uh, the same type of information that I'm gonna give in the next couple of minutes, but I think those are unique patients, not that really common. So I think 70 will be the, the proper age, and then your decision will be induction therapy, hypomethylating agent. I think in this context, a hypomethylating agent will be the standard of care, and then the question is, is this patient a candidate for transplant? And more important, perhaps also, the timing of that transplant. Should you take this patient to the best potential cytogenetic molecular response if you're able to achieve that? Or do you just do that at any uh, time whenever uh, um, uh, you can? The other important thing is that data with these hypomethylating agents keep changing. You know, we thought they were very inactive. And now we're starting to get randomized trials where the single agent is outperforming any doublet, which is incredible. And we saw data actually at the last ASH meeting with oral decitabine and cedasuridine with actually very intriguing activity, both in mono and biallelic P53 mutated disease. I'm not saying that this is a P53 directed agent, but there is clear evidence that this nucleus of oral uh, agents can be quite active in this group of patients with P53 uh, uh, mutated disease. Now, a few days ago, I was on vacation, so everything is like a few days ago. I don't know if this is a couple of weeks ago. But recently, we heard about, actually, the results of a trial that we were very excited. Unfortunately, turned to be, although we have not seen the data per se, a negative study, that this so-called enhanced trial, where we combine SSITADINE with or without a CD47 antibody known as Magrolimab, that we felt was kind of agnostic in terms of the P53 mutation. I think, although this is a negative study by the report, we really need to see the data and learn from this kind of very large uh, study that uh, uh, we conducted, our patients conducted, and uh, was supported by Gilead. So we really need to, to learn from, from this. Now, this opened the door to other forms of immune therapy. An example will be 
targeting this uh, molecule known as TIM3. This is kind of a, another checkpoint. There's also data that this resides in this leukemia stem cell per se, so it may have a dual uh, role in terms of uh, its activity as an anti-leukemia uh, agent in combination with hypomethylating agent. And this actually has led to a number of clinical trials that we call a stimulus. There are a number of them in MDS, in AML, and we saw uh, data at uh, this past ASH meeting uh, by Dr. Zidane from one of the uh, first uh, reports from randomized data. So the TIM3 inhibitor that I'm talking about here is called uh, sabatolimab, and again, this was uh, in patients with uh, malodysplastic syndrome, combining it with uh, the cytabine or your hypomethylating of choice that could be either it's a cytadine or one of the oral uh, hypo uh, methylating agents. One of the key questions with these forms of immune therapy is the toxicity profile that could be quite severe with like canonical PD-1, CTLA-4 inhibitors. Actually, this TIM3 inhibitor was quite well uh, tolerated. But the question is, are we going to have enough data to uh, support the approval of such compound? These are like early days. There is a uh, a thought that perhaps a drug like this could maintain responses, so therefore a longer duration of the evaluation of this trial could be quite important, similar actually to what happened in the early days with ipilimumab in melanoma, where you know a not very active approach actually resulted in significant improvement in survival. So I think it's quite important that, that we uh, uh, see that. And then interestingly was that this kind of approach actually seemed to be also what I refer to as agnostic, meaning not directed against the P53, but actually having activity in this group of patients with a very poor uh, uh, risks. So this is the phase three stimulus MDS2 uh, uh, design. Again, this hopefully will give us a, a final answer in terms of uh, uh, this question. Of course, other doublets are those with uh, BCL2 inhibitors. We don't really have time, and probably you are very familiar with the mechanism of action. These drugs are already approved in combination with esacitidine for patients with acute uh, uh, myelogenous leukemia, and they indeed actually constitute the standard of care for a large fraction of patients with uh, elderly AML, and it's therefore logical that we study this as well in patients with uh, high-risk uh, uh, myelodysplastic syndrome. There are a number of studies already exploring, actually reported, the combination of HMA plus uh, venetoclax. And what we see from those studies is a very high rate of response that could be actually over 90%, depending on what type of uh, criteria you see. But more importantly, we see that the expected survival from this phase one, kind of early two studies, actually longer than expected to what we consider to be this, you know, uh, what you will see with single agent, hypomethylating agent. Now, there is a caveat that this drug actually may not be that active in the context of P53 uh, mutated uh, uh, disease, so we probably need to learn how to uh, uh, use this. And then another, in this particular molecular context, and then another issue that is quite important is that this kind of doublets with venetoclax and an HMA has resulted in a very high fraction of patients going to a stem cell transplant. Now, this may not apply to the patient that we are discussing, but in other contexts, let's say non-P53 mutated disease, this actually could be a very important uh, issue. And what we're seeing at MD Anderson actually is that we are having the highest rate of transplant patients that we ever had thanks to this kind of uh, uh, doublets in clinical trials. Again, this is nice data, but we need to see the results of this trial. This is the phase three randomized study of esacitidine with or without venetoclax. It's called Verona. We don't know when this study is gonna read. I understand maybe at the end of this year, maybe at some point early next year. I don't really know. But we are really, uh, 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 in a way, anxious about uh, the results of this trial because you know we're seeing this kind of hard 
depressive state where these big, very well-designed randomized studies fail with Pebonido stat, now with Magrolimab, and hopefully this will be the study that will take us to an improvement in uh, therapeutics and survival for our patients with high-risk uh, uh, disease. The good news is that there are actually other drugs coming, and this is actually led by uh, uh, Dr. Discern, where, for instance, there may be approaches for molecular therapeutic uh, targeting in patients with MDS. So it turns out that a subset of these patients with MDS and also with CMML, they may express uh, 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 gene expression signature similar to what you see in acute promyelocytic leukemia, so basically uh, um, they are alpha, and therefore it will make sense potentially to use an inhibitor of uh, this potential pathway in patients with uh, MDS and maybe AML, and that's actually the basis for this select MDS1 uh, uh, study that is going to be targeting this subgroup of patients that have this specific uh, gene signature. Of course, these are early days, and hopefully we'll see very positive data, because at the end of the day, maybe in MDS, we need to break these diseases in different subgroups and really attack individually what will be uh, the major uh, uh, molecular problem. And with that, I really want to thank you for uh, this opportunity, for listening uh, to us. I think we're living through very exciting times in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. We put a lot of energy, all the room here, for almost 20 years in trying to improve outcomes, develop new drugs, and I think we're slowly getting there, so I'm very grateful to this community. And thank you very much, Dr. Discern, for bringing such a great uh, partner. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BXU860. This educational activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Geron, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.